Amen. Well, we're, it is our privilege this morning to return to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, just a few verses, really uh, finishing out the, uh, the chapter. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How many of you heard the news of Andrew Thornburn this week or last week? Maybe it's not a name that you heard about because it was, a, uh, it was something that happened in the country of Australia. Uh, Andrew Thornburn became, was named as the president of the Essendon Football Club in Australia. And he was, he was very highly qualified. He had been the chairman of a bank prior to that. He had been the chairman of, of several other companies. And then he was uh, delighted to be invited to become the president of the Essenton Football Club in Australia. And uh, the excitement was there. The news conference was, um, uh, was there for the whole country to, to hear. But then he ended up being president for only one day. Only one day. The very next day, they, uh, they announced that he had been told to resign his position, and he resigned, of course, willingly. But the reason why was because a scandal broke out, and people started digging into his background and who he is and what kind of person he is, and, and they discovered something, and it caused such an outrage that literally within 24 hours, he was required to step down as the president of Essington Football, Football Club. You wanna know what the scandal was? The scandal was he attended an evangelical church that taught a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. And that was enough to get him, force him out of his position. You say, well, that's all the way in Australia. Well, you may remember a few years ago, uh, Kelvin Cochran, he was the fire chief of a major metropolitan area in the United States. No, it was not Los Angeles. No, it was not New York. It was Atlanta, Georgia, which many would consider to be the buckle of the Bible Belt. I think Nashville and Atlanta kind of vie for that title, but uh, many people would consider to be Atlanta to be the buckle of the Bible Belt. And here, Kelvin Cochran was uh, accepted the position of the fire chief over the Atlanta Fire Department and came into a huge scandal. And the mayor dismissed him, fired him, because in his church, uh, years earlier, he had wrote a curriculum for his Sunday school, and that curriculum uh, taught a biblical view of marriage and human relationships. You say, well, that's Atlanta. Well, actually, beloved, I actually know of a situation here where an individual applied for a job, should have been a shoe-in, should have been a, kind of a no-brainer, and yet for some reason in the interview, the person's church came up, and we're pretty sure that this person did not get that position because they are a member of a church that teaches biblical views of marriage and human relationships. That happened right here in Batesville. So this is the kind of pressure that is going to become the norm, beloved. This is the kind of pressure that we are looking at. And don't say, well, one day it's, it's, it's not gonna come here for a long time. Beloved, it's already here. It's already here. It's already happened. And that's just one that we suspect happened. The truth is there's no telling how many times it's happened that maybe we don't know about. 
But that is right here in Batesville. And as followers of Christ, we are gonna have to ask ourselves the question, are we gonna be faithful to following Christ in the kingdom for the mission of the kingdom? Or are we gonna sell our souls to our employees, to our employers? Are we, going to, are we going to live out this kind of pressure that they are going to inevitably place on us? And so this morning, my prayer is that you'll, we will resolve to remain faithful to Christ, even in the face of these fearful kinds of circumstances that we come out, even when our livelihood is threatened, even when our very lives are threatened. One of the ways that the book of Revelation describes Christians who, who make it through, who, who, per, who persevere through the tribulation is that they are those who love Christ more than their lives. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that this morning? What if they came and took everything you owned? What if they came and took everything away from you? Can you say that we love Christ and that he is worthy of all of our love and worship, even when it's going to cost us everything? So that's what we're looking at this morning. Look in Matthew chapter eight, verses 23 and following. And I'll just invite you to go ahead and remain seated while we read this this morning. But from the text, it says, and when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When they came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So just to give you an idea of what's going on here and kind of where we are in Matthew, we are, we are looking at the growth of the kingdom uh, expressed in the mission, the mission of the disciple. We saw the life of the disciple and that, that took us through the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're looking at the mission of the disciple and that's gonna lead us all the way through chapter 10. And what we saw last week coming up to that is that it kind of divides off really nicely into these little subsets of ideas, kind of stories that Matthew gives in order to teach us what it is to be on mission for Christ. And we saw that in the first 18 verses, first 17 verses of chapter eight, that it means that we reach those who are outside. We, we saw a leper. We saw a Roman centurion. We saw a, a one who was in the covenant people, but she was sick with a fever, which rendered her unclean. And now last week when we came together, very briefly, we looked at two would-be disciples 
who came up and said, I will follow you wherever you go, but, and then they had, you know, a couple of excuses. Now, we don't know that for sure that they did not follow Christ, but I think the implication and the understanding of Matthew, I think he wants us to kind of see that they probably did not because they had different things that they were concerned about. We saw last week, if we're gonna follow Christ, we must die to self. We can't be concerned about places to lay our heads and places to, to rest. We can't be concerned about those things. We must die to self. And if we're gonna follow Christ, we must not delay. We saw that in the man who, who wanted to bury his father. And we talked about what that meant last week. It was more than likely referring to about a year delay in which time he would have waited for his father to decompose in the tomb. And then he would have gathered his bones into a box. Jesus said, no, follow me. And that theme of following me, that theme of following Christ, you're gonna see that over and over again. In fact, we just see that in verse 23. When Jesus got into the boat, his disciples did what? They followed him. And you're gonna see that theme kind of developing again and again and again through this section. And so Christ is going to lead them. He's going to take them to the other side of the sea. And in doing so, he's going to bring them into some very threatening situations. Beloved, I want you to understand that living on mission for Christ is going to lead us into peril at times. We saw the price of following Christ last week, and now we're looking at the perils of following Christ. And make no mistake, there, there will be perils. There are perils to living on mission. If you're in the military and you go on a mission, there are perils to that. There are dangers that you will face. And beloved, we are in spiritual warfare. We are not fighting the flesh. We're not fighting, we're not fighting people, but we are fighting the ideas. We are fighting the God of this world. We're fighting the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all of these things. And we don't use the weapons of warfare, of man's warfare. We're using the word of God and the gospel to expand the kingdom. The kingdom is not expanded by sword or war, but it is expanded by the word of God. And we're gonna see that more clearly in Matthew 13. And so the question we're gonna ask ourselves this morning, though, is that when we are in mission, what do we do? What do we do when this peril comes? And it's, and it's quite simply this. We must trust Christ completely when peril comes into our lives. And what kind of dangers, what kind of perils are we talking about on mission? Here's what we see. We see two kinds of our text. I don't have a PowerPoint this morning, so I apologize for that. But you can just simply write these down real quick. We're gonna see that we must trust Christ in physical perils, and we must trust Christ in spiritual perils. Physical dangers, if you prefer, and spiritual dangers. So what do we see here? Number one, that we must trust Christ in physical peril, in the midst of physical peril. And what do we mean by that? Now, again, notice in verse 24 that the disciples are in the boat. Now they're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you have ever seen the Sea of Galilee, you understand that the sea is more kind of a lake, all right? It's a big lake, but it's a lake. And, you know, in Israel, they kind of tend to upsize things, kind of like you upsize your meal at Burger King. You know, they kind of tend to upsize things over there. So if you're a lake, you're a sea. If you're a, if you're a hill, you're a mountain. Uh, you know, they just kind of tend to do that. 
And so, so the Sea of Galilee is, is really a lake. At, at its broadest point, it's probably about eight miles across. And uh, I've, I've ridden across the Sea of Galilee before. It took, a, it took a couple hours, but only because we stopped and did like a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of it, which the stories that I read that happen in the middle of the, in the, middle of the Sea of Galilee, I really didn't want to wait there that long. But apparently that was part of the, that was part of the tour. So whatever, I was kind of nervous the whole time. But what happens there is that it, it, the sea kind of works like a bowl. It's kind of in the, it's kind of in the ground, kind of in a bowl and it's surrounded by hills. And, and to the South of it, you have Judean desert to the North of it. You have the Golan Heights. And, and during the winter, that really cold air off of Golan Heights will come down and it'll come down through those hills and, and kind of create these wind tunnels and it'll come into this bowl. At the same time, you got this warm, moist air coming up from, or this warm, dry air, excuse me, coming up from the south and it all comes into this bowl as well and it circles around. And what happens when you get warm air circling around together like that? Basically, you got a squalor. It's a tornado above water. And that's the kind of storm that's happening here. And they happen frequently. They happen a lot. They are sudden. They are scary. Um, just out of curiosity, I, I pulled up some YouTube videos just to see if I can, just to see if I can see one of these storms. And, uh, and there was one video where they measured one of the waves at about eight feet. And so it was a, it's pretty big waves that they can get anywhere from four to eight feet. And, and needless to say, it can be a very threatening, very dangerous situation. And as they are crossing, one of these storms comes up. It's especially bad, so bad that these are professional fishermen that are getting scared and they are starting to cry out for their lives. They're doing everything they can. It says here in the text that the waves are overtaking the boat and, and they are in serious danger of capsizing and they are using every technique they probably know to do, being tossed around like a pinball. It's a very frightening situation. And yet, at the end of verse 24, Jesus is in the bottom of the boat and he's asleep. He's asleep. Why was he asleep? I've heard a lot of ideas. It's an expression of his sovereignty. Uh, there's probably some truth to that. I think there probably is. But uh, a lot of your guys today will compare this to Jonah when Jonah was asleep in the boat. I, I, I don't really see that in all honesty. I heard, uh, I heard one very popular preacher who happens to pastor the biggest church in, uh, in America. He said, uh, Jesus was able to sleep in the boat because he had inner peace inside of him whenever the storm was going on around him. Really? Is that what we're learning here? Is that what it's supposed to be? I don't think, I don't think the idea here is inner peace. I, I mean, he's God. I think he can sleep through it because he's God, okay? I don't know that inner peace has anything to do with it. Here's one, and let me just suggest this, and I know, I know maybe that this is out of line, but, but let me just suggest that the reason why Jesus was asleep is because he was tired. He's just tired. 
a long day of ministering, a long day of, of helping others and, and all of this. And now the whole reason why he's wanting to go to the other side is to get some distance. And, and he finally gets a moment of, of, of aloneness and, and it's probably moist and kind of cold and he's covered up and he goes to sleep. I think that's probably the reason he needed rest. And yet all of this is going on. Anybody, uh, uh, you know, Roxanne says that I can probably sleep through a tornado. And I say, well, I'm in pretty good company here. So that's a, that's a spiritual gift, beloved. And so, and so, but the disciples at this point, they, they go down and they see Jesus and they're asleep and they say, save us, Lord. Don't you care that we're dying? We are dying here. It's interesting to uh, compare this to the other accounts because Mark, for example, in Mark chapter four, they ask him, Lord, don't you care that we're dying? In uh, Luke in chapter eight, he says, oh, master, master. You know, you get the idea of total panic here. Absolute frightening circumstances. Total fear. And I've, I've heard some well-intentioned preachers who say that, oh, the disciples should have understood that they were with Jesus. They were the safest place they could have been. Uh, give them a little credit here. This is threatening. This is, this is a life-threatening situation that they're in. And they don't know what else to do. All they know to do is wake up Jesus and say, do something. I don't know what they expected Jesus to do, in all honesty. He has, they've seen him do miracles. They've seen him do things like healing people and they've seen him casting out demons. They've seen all this stuff, but they haven't seen any nature miracles. I'm not exactly sure exactly what they were thinking Jesus could do, except maybe take them somewhere else. But Jesus' response in verse 26, he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? You know, in verse 10, he marveled at the faith of the centurion. Now he's rebuking the little faith of the disciples. So he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the sea and there is a great calm. The sea, after all of this chaos, suddenly is like glass. What's the significance of this? I, you hear people talk about the storms of life and you hear people will preach on, you know, Christ being the calm in your storm and, and stuff like that. I, I don't know that that's really the significance of this. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they're wrong in what they're saying. I'm just saying that maybe this is not the best place to get that. Because the whole point, I think, is found in verse 27. And the men in the boat marveled and they asked, what sort of man is this that the winds and the sea obey him? What kind of person is this? Who have we got in the boat with us? The significance of this is to point to and ponder who is Jesus? Who is this person and the significance of this miracle is that we see the full person of Christ on display. Why do we make such a big deal that Jesus was sleeping? Because he was tired. Why? Because he was human. 
He was fully human, subject to all the physical limitations of humanity. He needed to sleep because he was exhausted and he needed to sleep. And yet we see that John chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ became full humanity in his incarnation, subject to all the physical limitations that humanity brings. There was nothing about Jesus that would cause him to look as a, at a, as, as a person at his appearance and say, oh, this must be an angel. This must be the son of God. This must be, no, we would look at him and say, this is just another guy. He was completely human. And yet the disciples understood the significance of what just happened, that Jesus got up. He rebukes the winds and the sea and there is a sudden calm and the sea is like glass and they understand the significance of that. Because you see, the one they have in their boat is not only fully human, he is also fully God. Why is that? Remember that scripture reading we read? Turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. And it talks about how some went down in the ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh and, and wondrous works in the deep. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. And it goes on and on. And, and notice what it says in verse 28. And then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. What did he do? He made the storm be still, and the, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who can do this? Only God can do this. You know, there's a... Uh, there's a trend among some evangelicals today to claim that they can control the weather. It started a while ago. They've been doing this for years, but now there's got whole YouTube channels where they talk about that. In fact, there is one false teacher who she even has shirts that you can buy that say weather warriors on it. And you can, you can try to learn how you can take her class for a certain amount of money. And, and you can, uh, you can, learn how to control the weather with your face, with your faith. You want to know something ironic? Guess where she lives? Florida. Where was she a couple weeks ago? I don't know. I guess, I guess it didn't work. No, she cannot control the weather. There's not a human being on earth that control the weather. We, at best, we can predict the weather. And quite frankly, we're not too good at that. Who is the only one who can control the weather? God. So what is the significance of Jesus both sleeping in the boat and then getting up and, and rebuking the winds and the sea and they become silent as glass? What is the significance of that? Because we see the full person of Jesus Christ, the son of God on display, his full humanity and his full deity. And it's, and it's designed here, Matthew writes this to cause us to wonder, who is this? And how do we respond to him? Colossians chapter two, verse nine says, for in him, meaning Christ, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Fully God, fully man. 
And beloved, when we are in the midst of physical peril, we remember that Jesus Christ not only went through physical peril, but he's God over it. He is sovereign over it. And we can trust him. We can trust him. You know, so often we tend to interpret the will of God like if things are going smoothly in my life, then that must mean I'm in the will of God. And if things are going terrible in my life, that must mean that I'm out of the will of God. Beloved, that's, that's not true. That's not true. For very often following the will of God is going to place you in peril. Just like it did Thornburg, just like it did Cochran, just like it did this one I know of in town threatened their very livelihood because they followed the will of God. It's going to do that. And what do we do when physical peril comes? Because of our faith, we trust in Jesus Christ and know that he is the sovereign over the world. That he is the one who is in control. And that he is the one who ultimately is our boss. He is ultimately our Lord. He is the one whom we work for and he's gonna meet all your needs. He's gonna give you everything you need. And so, but what about the things we can't see? We can see the world around us. We can see all of that. We know when that danger is present, but what about the things we can't see? And we're gonna see that we are gonna trust Christ not only in physical, not only physical peril, we must trust him in spiritual peril as well. We go on, they finally get over to the other side of the sea in verse 28. They've been talking about it since uh, verse 18. They finally get there 10 verses later. In verse 28, they come to the other side and immediately they run into two demon-possessed men. Now, there's some details here that Matthew, because of his purpose and because of why he's writing, uh, there's some details here that he doesn't give us. For example, he does not record the conversation that takes place between Jesus and one of the demon-possessed men. We know that from Mark. We know that from Luke. Mark and Luke don't tell us about the other guy. Here, Matthew tells us, no, there is actually two people there. And yet Jesus had a conversation apparently with one of them but we don't see that here in Matthew. In fact, what's interesting is that in Matthew's telling, Jesus only ever says one word. We don't get a conversation at all. We get one word. That's it. He's silent pretty much through the whole episode. It's the demons who do all the talking. They come to him. They immediately recognize him and bow in fear they were so uncontrollable, just like the fierce storm that they had that nearly killed them. Now it says here in verse 28, uh, two men who um, were so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so we saw the chaos of the, of the sea, and now we see the chaos that these men, these demon-possessed men are causing and yet, once again, just like in the boat, Jesus was asleep and now he's silent. Matthew doesn't really tell us anything of what Jesus says. He's silent. So it's a reflection of his sovereignty. Looks down in verse 28, and behold, the men cried out, what are you to here to do with us, O son of God? Are you here to torment us before the time? 
These men know who he is. Jesus doesn't need to speak a word. They know who's in charge here. I hear people sometimes, they'll say something like, uh, you know, the demons here, they say, what are you here to do with us, O son of God? You know, what the demons here are saying, they're trying to speak the name of Jesus in order to take control over him. I highly doubt that. Highly doubt that. The demons absolutely know who he is and they absolutely know They know what their future is. Did you notice that, what they said? Are you here to torture us before the time? They know their future. They know what's coming. They know who dis. They know all of that. And all they can do is stand before him, bow before him, and ask him, what are you here to do with us? Matthew gives a little aside here to let us know who these pigs are. And the demons say in verse 31, demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus, the first word in this whole episode simply says this, go. And they go. They obey Jesus. To their own destruction, they obey his word. And they go into that nearby herd of pigs. Mark 5 tells us that there were about 2,000 pigs here. It was, a, it was a huge herd. You know, when I first read this, I thought, pigs in Israel? Really? Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, this side of the sea is known as the Decapolis, and it's thoroughly Romanized. Herod had a palace over here. Uh, uh, very aristocratic Roman aristocrats lived on this side of the sea. And pig was, uh, pig was, a, was an entree. So somebody had to raise them, and so they had a whole herd of pigs over here. The region was completely Roman and Greek dominated, and they begged him, let us go into these pigs. And Jesus says, go. They immediately go. They immediately go over the steep hill, and they immediately die. Immediately die. This was a huge financial loss. I can, I can only imagine what it must have cost the, uh, the, the farmer, the pig farmer. But what an image of spiritual warfare. What an image of a picture of Jesus's authority and of his mission where he comes over to the side of Israel that is thoroughly paganized, thoroughly Roman, thoroughly Greek, Hellenized. And that's where he goes and that's where he finds these demon-possessed men. In fact, there's a passage here. Look in Isaiah chapter 65 for just a moment. This to show you how bad this really is. Isaiah 65 and verses one and following. It says, and I was ready, this is God talking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And watch this, verse four. Who sit in tombs and sleep at night in the secret places, who eats pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. You say, keep to yourself and do not come near me for I am too holy for you. 
These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. God in Isaiah 65 says, these are the kind of people that I am going to. These are the kinds of people that I am spreading out my arms and saying, here am I, here am I, here am I. What kind of people? People who sit in tombs, who spend the night in secret places, probably talking about the inside of the tombs, who eat pig's flesh, Broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. I mean, think about this. this. This is the most disgusting kind of individual, the most unclean kind of individual that a Jew, a first century Jew can imagine. This is the dirtiest, most unclean, tainted kind of person. Contact with the dead, living in tombs, pigs, flesh. And it's not enough that the pigs, that they're eating pigs, the demons actually want to go, they ask to be allowed to go into the pigs. How, how nasty is that in the Jewish mind? Couldn't be worse. And yet these are exactly these two demon-possessed men who represent probably the most unclean, disgusting individual that the Jews can imagine, the most sinful person that can be imagined in the Jewish mind, and yet these are exactly the people whom Jesus came to. These are exactly the ones that Jesus went to. Could not be worse, and yet that's where he went. And what's the spiritual danger of this? Look in verse 33 and following. Says, and the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. You would think, I mean, everybody saw this man. Everybody knew. Everybody knew, don't go in those tombs because that's where those two men are. Everybody knew that's, you cannot go that direction. You cannot go that way. And yet now they come out, and by the very word of Jesus, these men are, are right in their upright mind. They're clothed. They're, they're, they're healed. You would think that this would be a huge response, right? What do they say? And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Begged him. Begged him. Do you see the connection there? Who else begged Jesus just a few verses earlier? Who else was begging Jesus to let them go away. You remember? In verse 31, it was the demons that begged him. And now in verse 34, now the city comes out to meet Jesus and they see the financial disaster. They see the cost that Jesus is going to cause to their livelihood. They see the cost of what it, what's gonna happen if Jesus were to stay in their area. And just like the demons, they beg him to leave, beg him to leave. Beloved, once again, what, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to understand from this? We're to understand that we are in a spiritual warfare. We are, we are in a mission that are going out, seeking out the ones whom God is seeking who are not seeking him and in many ways do not want him in their life. This is the war. 
This is the mission. The Christian has three enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Beginning in verse 18, we see all three on display. We see the two would-be disciples who would not give up their own flesh. We see the world attacking in the boat. And we see this confrontation with the devils, all three. This is the mission that we're called to. This is what we are called to do. And the question is, will we trust Christ in the midst of those things? We saw in verses 23 through 27 who he is. He is God. He has authority over the winds and the seas. And now we see even in verses 28 and following that he has authority over the supernatural. He has authority over the, the demonic. When he says go, they go. And there is no debate. There is no recount. There is no lawyers involved. Jesus says go, they go. Even to their own destruction. And beloved, in the same way, one day, there's gonna come a time when many will come before Christ and they'll say, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Didn't we do all of these things in your name? And they will hear, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And they will obey him even to their own destruction. My question is, will you be one of those on that day? Are you gonna be one of the ones who hears those words or are you going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you gonna be in the mission? <clears throat> Beloved, one of the most, most important things of going to mission, one of the most important things of going to battle, working anywhere, you name it, is that you must be able to trust your leaders. You must be able to trust your leadership. The question is this morning, do you trust Jesus Christ? He is sovereign over the world. He is sovereign over disease and death. He is sovereign over the demonic. He is in charge of it all. He is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Or will you turn away and remain in your uncleanness and one day, Obey him to your own destruction. Which one will it be? Our Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for each and every person whom you came, Jesus came into contact with. Or we don't know the final destiny of all of them. We don't know about these two men who Jesus met in the verses before. We don't even know what happened to these two demon-possessed men. But Lord, we do know that what you are communicating to us is you're asking us to ponder who is Jesus and respond to him this morning. And maybe there's someone here, they don't need to respond to you in salvation, they already have that, but Lord, maybe there's someone who is not living in trust to you. Maybe there's someone here who is not walking in a way that is pleasing to you. Maybe there's someone right now who is facing physical uh, struggles or they're, they're facing spiritual struggles and they don't understand how can I trust Christ in the midst of this? 
How can I, how can I practically trust him? Lord, whatever their need is, I pray that you would meet that need this morning. And if there's one who's here who needs to come forward and ask for how can I trust Christ specifically? How can I, how can I obey him in the midst of the things that I'm facing, Lord, whatever it is, I pray that they would come. I wanna ask you to stand and just keep your heads bowed for a moment and if you're, just reflect on what we have talked about this morning. And if you're here and you want to talk or you want to pray, you're looking for advice on how you can practically trust the Lord in the midst of perils, we want you to, we want you to come and do that as we, as we play just for a few minutes.